I was thinking about this new series that we're going into, and I was thinking back to my childhood, and I was thinking how when I was a kid, my favorite games all involved war. I don't know if any can relate to that, but all my favorite games when I was a kid involved war. I grew up, grew up in the country, and it was really tough to get enough people together to play baseball or play football, but I could always take my Red Rider BB gun, which I put in my truck. I decided not to bring it in at the last minute today because I just, I just think, yeah, could open the door to all kinds of things with that. But, um, but I could always take my Red Rider BB gun out into the woods, and I could play some version of Cowboys and Indians, you know, and, and in my little kid mind, it was really easy for me to pull the trigger at those imaginary targets because when I was a little kid, the cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the bad guys. When I was a kid, that's how I thought. When I grew older, I began to see things through a different lens. In fact, when I was a kid, I could climb up our windmill on our little family farm. I could get up there at the top of the windmill. I could look east, and I could see the Prairie Island nuclear reactors. What I didn't realize then, when I would see those things, is that they were built on land that had been promised to a particular tribe of folks who still reside there, and and that was built without their permission. Um, Hmm. When I grew older, I also began to hear about the Trail of Tears. I read about what happened at Wounded Knee. And how many of you know that Minnesota has their own skeletons when it comes to all of this? 38 of them were buried near Mankato, Minnesota. The largest mass execution in U.S. history took place in Mankato. And it would have been even bigger. It would have been, instead of 38, it would have been 300 if Abraham Lincoln hadn't stepped in and said, we just, we just can't do that. I'll say more about that in a minute. You can look all this up. You can Google the Dakota War of 1862. After years and years of complete disregard for native lands and broken promises and corruption, members of various Dakota tribes fought back. And I worked at a church in southwest Minnesota, uh, New Ulm, it was, And about one block from our church, there was this monument. It was called the Defender's Monument. And it was set up because during this conflict, um, at one point, the city, the town of New Ulm, was surrounded and the people barricaded themselves right there, right where our church was. And so about one block from where we were, I was to the site where tradition holds, this is where the women and children were huddled in this building with a powder keg ready to light it in case the defenses didn't hold up. And so they created this monument to that that conflict to the people who defended the city. Well, when this war was over, hundreds of settlers had been killed. More than 1,000 Dakota were interned in Minnesota jails and camps after being, then they were exiled from our state. And get this, in Minnesota, a bounty of $25 per scalp was placed on any of the Dakota who would come back into our state. So now here's the thing. If you were one of the settlers during that time, you would have felt justified pulling that trigger. There were atrocities that were committed. As many as 800 settlers were killed, many of them absolutely brutally. So you might have felt justified. But when Lincoln looked at the totality of the evidence as best he could in Washington, D.C., he went on record as saying, I can't authorize the execution of 300 people, even though there were things that happened on both sides, 
for votes, he said. I can't do that for votes. Today, it's hard for me to look at our state seal and not see that there's still unresolved conflict captured in there. I don't know if that was their intent. You know, different people say different things about our seal, if we can put that up on the screens. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the original intent was behind this design, but it's hard for me, knowing these things, to not look at that seal and not notice that the Indian still has a spear in his hand and the settler still has his gun pretty close to him. Conflict's not unique to Minnesota, is it? Can I get an amen? From the history of the world, there have always been wars and rumors of wars. There has always been conflict, and so much of it goes unresolved. Well, here's something that people on opposing sides often do. There's a place to write this down in your notes. In a war, opposing sides turn their enemies into what? Into targets. If you want to raise up an army, and you want to get that army to destroy your enemy, one of the things you do is you make your targets, as you're practicing, you make your targets increasingly to look like the enemy. And then what do you do? You make your enemy look more like the target. You try to do those two things. If you do those two things, and it's a lot easier for people to try to destroy the enemy that you have trained them to destroy. Well, we're discussing this series, this new series that starts today. And as we were, um, this image came to mind. We rolled this image out on Ash Wednesday, if we can put this up. We, we rolled out this image of there's a cliff on one side and there's a cliff on the other side and then there's this big gap between them. Well, if you're on this side and you see the other people as that side and you see these people as your enemies, how do you win? You destroy your enemy. Right? You stay on your side and you, and you attack and you attack and you attack. That's how, how you win. Well, this Lent, we want to cast a very different vision than that. And this vision is not unique to us. It's a vision that was cast you know, 2,000 years ago very, very well. For the next 40 days, we're going to invite everyone to reflect deeply on two first century letters, First and Second Corinthians. And these were written to people who are living in a culture that is remarkably similar to ours. Remarkably similar to ours. So if you have your Bible, let's look at how the first of these two letters opens. 1 Corinthians, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to go home with one. Um, we keep them there in the back. Um, and please take one as a gift to you. All right, let's start with verses 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, before we dive into this text, I want to show you something. Let's get a Christ count for just these first three verses. All right, we'll even make it easier for you. How many Christs do we get in just the first three verses? We got four. The Christ count is really high in this. This is important. This is worth noting. This is how Paul is rolling out this letter. He refers to Christ four times in the first three verses. This is clearly going to be a letter that is focused on and anchored to the example and the teachings of whom? Of Christ. He's trying to write a letter that is just anchored to, focused on 
Christ. More than anything else, Paul the author wants the recipients of this letter to experience a life that is truly Christ-centered. Truly Christ-centered. Not just giving lip service to it. Truly Christ-centered. Paul had written to these people before. You find little clues about that. In chapter 5, you see that Paul refers to another letter they've been written for. So 1 Corinthians isn't the first letter that he'd written to them. Paul knows these people. He cares for them. And this letter that he writes opens up with following the conventions for a traditional Greco-Roman opening. But right from the start, as he's doing that, he's weaving in these themes. Key themes that are going to be reinforced and circled back to over and over again in this letter. Paul refers to himself, as he opens this up, as an apostle right away in verse 1. And that's a title that he's going to insert at least nine more times in this letter. That's more than any of his other letters. And I think he's doing at least two things by doing that. One, he's establishing, hey, I have authority here. But the other thing that he does so brilliantly is he starts to show, but I don't use that authority the way that others use that authority. He's trying to show that he's trying to set a different example than the kings of this world because he serves a different king. He serves a very different king than the kings of this world. Well, Paul addressed this letter, as we read, to God's church. The word translated here as church is the Greek word ekklesia. In that time and in that place, as we've talked about so many times before, ekklesia is a word that was just used in Greek to refer to all kinds of different assemblies. But Jesus started to frame that out differently. He said, I have a gathering, I have an assembly that is to look different. And Paul certainly follows and even builds on that theme. In fact, he calls this special assembly, he uses in just this opening, he uses the word sanctified and he refers to the saints. Those two words are very closely related in Greek. Sanctified comes from a verb that means to make holy and the word saint is a noun that means holy people. So he just doubles down and says, okay, this assembly has got holy people who have been made holy. So he's really just putting all that out there. Paul is writing to people who are set apart for God's service Along with all of those, he links these believers with all of the assemblies all over the world who call upon the name of Jesus. All right, let's take a look at this. The Christ count continues as Paul continues. Let's look at the next six verses here. And we highlighted it too so you can just see. This is so Christ-saturated. Verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you and because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Is this a Christ-centered letter? Yes, and every one of those things he says, there are all themes that he's going to continue on about Christ as the letter goes. What was interesting to me um, for this whole series is how then this opening transitions right into what's going to be our theme here over Lent. It transitions right into reconciliation. This opening goes right into, hey, this is how we've been called to be, and there are divisions among you. All kinds of divisions among you. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of conflict among the saints. And they say that hindsight is twenty twenty. In this Lent, what we're going to 
what we're going to do here is we're going to take now a section from 2 Corinthians, and we're going to use that as the lens to better understand 1 Corinthians. And I think Paul would have been excited that we were doing that because 2 Corinthians has a different feel than 1 Corinthians. It's clear that things had happened in Paul's life. It is clear that things had transpired in the Corinthians before he had written 2 Corinthians. And so he's writing that letter in a responsive way to these, these developments in his life and their life. And so he's building on what happened in 1 Corinthians. So here's this lens then that we want to look at 1 Corinthians 2 through. 2 Corinthians uh, is what I want to turn right now then. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses uh, 17 through 21. Let's start just with verse 17. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is a key concept here, key concept. And I love the way the pastor and, NT, and scholar N.T. Wright, how he what he says about this. He says, when a new world is born, a new way of living goes with it. So if we're really a new creation, a new way of living goes with it. And we all know this. If you get a new job, if you move to a new country, if you get married, if you have a baby, there's all kinds of new responsibilities, right? New realities call for new changes, right? And well, if we're truly in Christ, if we're a new creation, then there's things that come with that. If we're going to be authentic, there are things that go with that title. And so he talks about one of these key things here. So the passage continues. Let's look at verses 18 through 19. All this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the what? Say it out loud because you need to. I need to. (laughs) The ministry of reconciliation. If we're going to be serious about this new life, this is part of what that means. To be about the ministry of reconciliation. And as we said on Ash Wednesday here in this room, reconciliation is a beautiful word. It means to bring together. To bring together. Paul makes the case that God reconciled us to himself. He died for us, and so now we're invited to live for him. And as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, divisions were everywhere in Corinth. They were everywhere, just as they are in our culture. In our culture. And God had entrusted them, just as God had entrusted them with a message of reconciliation. He's also entrusted that same responsibility to us. Paul writes this. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, When I was a child... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. And one of the things I've needed to and continue, Emily, learning, is I've got to lay down my Red Rider BB gun, you know, metaphorically, and stop making easy targets out of people. I was blessed to have a father who modeled what it looks like to be a godly man. Um, and he modeled something very different than choosing a side and then turning on those who are on the other side and just a- attacking them and making them into targets. Several years ago, I actually found out that my dad had been working on a book. And the working title of that book was Two from the Other Side. Here's how it opened. He writes, I was eight years old when the United States entered into World War II against Germany. 
I remember rapid announcements and news articles depicting the German soldiers as robot-type humans that would do exactly what they were told. I assumed then that the German people were all some type of monsters being led by Hitler. I was young, and together with my younger brothers, I found the war exciting. We fought mock battles with the imaginary Germans, and they were always the losers. My two older brothers were serving in the merchant marines, and how I wished I were old enough to join them. The Minnesota farm that we lived on was far removed from the war, though, and I never associated suffering and dying with the fighting and the bombing. I knew, that, I knew no one that died in the war. We had some shortages, but living on a farm allowed us to have a rather normal life. The end of the war brought my brothers home, and I soon forgot about the fighting. 1946 changed to 1953, and I was a soldier serving in Korea. In Korea, I was able to view the effects of war firsthand. I saw people with limbs missing, families living in cardboard boxes, children begging for food, and cities destroyed. I walked over battle areas where the bones and the skeletons lay, where people had fallen. I would pick up dog tags of Korean and Chinese soldiers, and I began to wonder more and more about what it was like to be on the other side. I couldn't speak with the Koreans or the Japanese, and I left the Far East still thinking about the war from the enemy point of view. I was particularly interested in what it would be like to be an average citizen on the opposite side of the war. More years went by, and again, I forgot about the war. A chance meeting with a fellow employee in the late 1960s awakened my interest again. I had heard about a gardener at the 3M plant, having worked once for Adolf Hitler in his garden on his farm. I had studied German some, and I was anxious to meet this man. Our paths crossed on the plant grounds one day, and my Guten Tag brought a like answer. And I met Gerhard Fischer. 3M Company Gardener, and his wife, Melanie. You know, I, I think about how easy it would have been for my dad to have just held on to the beliefs he had when he was a kid and to just group all the German people together. But his perspective changed when he actually took steps towards a man named Gerhard Fischer, his wife, Melanie, and as he actually started having conversations with them. It changed. It changed the way he thinks. He, his perspective changed as he personally got to know two from the other side. Well, what if more of us were more like that? What if more of us, instead of making easy targets out of people, we would take steps towards learning more and asking deeper questions? In fact, the thing I wrote here in my notes is I put, what if the battlefield itself began up to be a place where we started to ask deeper questions about conflict. What if we looked at all the collateral damage that is happening all around us as people just fire off at one another? And what if we stopped othering others as much as we do? What if we took words like this to heart from 2 Corinthians, picking up where we left off? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through whom? Through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. An ambassador is a representative. 
representative. We can't represent Jesus of Nazareth well if we don't engage in the ministry of reconciliation. But we need to be warned because even right here, there's ominous overtones, aren't there? Ambassadors in this world, you get to ride in the limo with the little flags. What does Jesus say, his ambassadors? He says, pick up your cross. Follow me. This isn't for the faint of heart. There's a place to write this in your notes too. Reconciliation isn't rocket science. It's what? Harder. Before you get all insulted if you're a scientist or insulted if you're a big math person, rocket science is science. You can math your way to building a rocket. You can't math your way to reconciliation. There's way too many variables. I'm not taking anything away from rocket science. I'm just saying we got somebody to the moon. We still can't get people to get along. Amen. For every difficult conversation that you step towards, you need to prepare for at least three difficult conversations. There's a great resource. We're going to recommend it here in just a minute. In this resource, they talk about the three different conversations that are part of every difficult conversation. One of them is the what happened conversation. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is because we go into the conversation thinking we already know the answer. But do we know the answer to what happened? No. We know the answer from our perspective, our limited perspective. There's information going into every conversation with somebody else that we don't have yet. But we go in assuming that we've got things figured out. And that just sets us up for problems. Another conversation that goes into every conversation is the feelings conversation. You live, leave feelings out, you're, it's not going to go well. Because we're holistic beings. And feelings of fear and anger and hurt and pride and betrayal, they have a huge impact on how that conversation is going to go. Can I get an amen? So you've got to be attentive to that. And then there's the identity conversation. And this can be the hardest of all because it's often happening in the subconscious. Our identity as a hard worker or a caring person or a good husband or a good mom can easily be threatened in a conversation and we don't even know that's what's happening. Someone is coming up and they're just sharing something and what we're hearing in our subconscious is, oh, you think I'm a bad person. Oh, you think you know everything. And that's not what they're saying. And so then fight or flight kicks in and all kinds of bad things happen. So let's just say this now, for the sake of argument. Here's why this gets so complicated. Let's just say you master all three of those conversations. This is still not going to work all the time because they may not care. They may be so far on their side that they don't even want to have a conversation because you're the enemy. (laughs) This is tough. Reconciliation is tough. When we were mapping out the series and we were talking with the teaching team, every single one of us had battle stories where all we tried to do was to go into a situation and try to mediate. We could see things just escalating. And so we would just step in just trying to say, hey, let's talk this out. And then where did the, where did the anger go? Yeah, it came towards us. We're just trying to speak the truth in love and you just get pounded. This is tough work. If you get serious about this, you're going to find that attempting reconciliation, I think, is the new eating with sinners. You know, people accuse Jesus. They're like, why are you eating with them? In this world, if you just try to even have a conversation and try to understand someone who's not in your camp, 
often those who are in your camp, as soon as you start to even listen to somebody else, they start turning against you and painting you as a new target. They'll turn on you the moment you stop siding with them. And again, what's so frustrating about all this, among other things, is that everyone gives lip service to building bridges, don't they? Everyone does. But the moment you start to actually start crossing a bridge for the purpose of trying to understand another perspective, what happens is, picture this, picture that big gap, and there's a bridge in the middle, and you start walking over that bridge, you start taking fire from both sides, and you're in this vulnerable place. But there's hope. There is hope. And I want to encourage you to write this down. Fortunately, we're not the first bridge builders. Can I get an amen? We're we're not the first to be in this spot where we're trying to do these things. And we have a lot that we can learn from those who've gone before us. Reconciliation isn't rocket science. There's no formula that's going to guarantee positive results. But there are biblical principles and there are great practical tools that we can learn. And not only that, there's a God who wants to be working in and through us and going before us. As we mentioned already, this Lent, we're going to explore biblical principles from letters that were written to people in a city called Corinth. One of the reasons that we trans, that letter transfers so well to our culture is that our culture is a lot like theirs. Here's where you can find Corinth on a map. And I would encourage you to get a map where you can look at this even more closely because then you'll be able to see the detail of how on this map there's this... Oh, I stand up from the projector. Um, this is Greece, and there's this little piece of land that separates this from there, and Corinth was right there on that little piece of land. And so it was really strategically located. And so you, you had travel that was coming by land, north and south, would cut through Corinth. Travel that was happening from east to west from the sea would go through Corinth. Even though that land was there, they would actually either walk across a lot of people or they would um, they would. They would back of a better word, portage a ship across this stretch. So you had all these people from all these diverse areas coming in here. Um, Corinth was originally a Greek city, but that city was destroyed in 146 BC during a war with Rome. And then that city was refounded as a Roman colony. So it was a Roman city with Greek roots. And again, because of its location, it had all these travelers from everywhere. Corinth became a major urban center, one of the largest in the ancient Mediterranean, and one of the most culturally and religiously diverse cities in the empire. And we're going to get to this more in the weeks ahead, but Corinth, you see from Paul's letter, it was this place where social status mattered a lot. Not only that, there were these people who were constantly jumping on the bandwagon of new thoughts and new teachings. It was an exciting, world-class city. And this young church that had been founded there was wrestling with a lot of issues. and had a lot of questions. They were dealing with division and social snobbery. There was a lot of confusion regarding marriage and divorce and what God-honoring worship should look like and what parts of the culture were okay And which parts of the culture should you not get involved with? Any of that sound relevant today? Oh, man. If you want to take a rocket to the moon, it is really, 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 really hard. I'm not diminishing rocket science. You need to figure out propulsion. You need to figure out navigation. You need to figure out life support, all of which are incredibly complex. As I mentioned earlier, reconciliation isn't rock and science. It's harder. And all of us could benefit from three things. Reflecting deeply on biblical principles, 
learning practical skills, and then following Christ's example when it comes to praying and fasting. So let's, with the couple minutes we have left, let's talk about each of those and how we're going to try to do this this Lent. Let's start with biblical principles. One of the things we want to encourage everyone to do, read through First and Second Corinthians. If you only have time for one, read the passage we just did, the Second Corinthians. It's up there on the top of your, your, your notes. Read that from Second Corinthians. Use that as your lens. And then look at First Corinthians. A great resource, if you want some help with that, a great resource is this little book. It's called um, Paul, First Corinthians for Everyone. You can pick it up on Amazon. Hopefully next week we'll have a copy of that out there in, in the um, lobby that you can take a look at. Uh, you can take a look at this one if you want. Just promise not to read my notes. All right, let me decide. Um, but anyway, it's a great book. What he does is he takes a passage from 1 Corinthians and then he shares a little bit about what was going on there and helps us understand it better. So I'd encourage you to look at that resource for the biblical principles because there's so much here about reconciliation. One of the other things that we did is to give you a heads up on the back of your notes, we tried to put our jumping off point for each of these different messages that we're going to have from 1 Corinthians. So you could, if for that week, you might even want to read specifically that, that section. All right, so for biblical principles, that's one of the things we recommend. When it comes to practical skills, this is one of my go-tos right here. Practical skills with reconciliation, difficult conversations. Every person should read this book. It is so many helpful tools. I use this thing probably every week, you know, principles from this every week. So if you want to get better at some of the practical skills, I'd encourage you to consider that. The third thing we encourage everyone to do then is to pray and fast during this series during this, this time of Lent. Now, we recognize with fasting that there's some reasons why some people can't medically. If that's the case, don't. But here are some ideas. This isn't the way you have to do it or anything like that, but here are some ideas. And we put these down in the back of your notes here where it says fasting together. We invite you to fast with us this Lent. Um, one of the ways you could do that would be on Fridays from sunup to sundown. We also encourage you on Good Friday. If you could fast specifically on Good Friday, it's pretty powerful to have the first food that touches your mouth to be communion on Good Friday. So you might want to consider that. And we believe that biblical fasting is, should be focused. You should have a reason for it. Don't just do it for the sake of, of doing it. And so our point of our fast is reconciliation. And I included just a real simple prayer that you could feel free to use when you're, as you're praying. Because one of the things that happens when you're fasting, that hunger pain can be a cue for you to think and to, to, to remember to pray. And there's a little prayer you could use like this. God, help me understand more deeply the price that you paid to reconcile us to yourself and what it means to be an ambassador in this broken world. Bring to mind the ways I've contributed to this brokenness. Show me what repentance looks like. I also lay down my relationship with so-and-so before you. Reveal any actions that you would have me to take and go before me in Jesus' name. Really... Use whatever words you want, but I really encourage you to make sure you're starting with yourself and saying, God, help me to see how I've contributed. Because most of the time, almost all the time, we've contributed somehow if there's a gap. And then ask God to go before you and take these full, this full Lent to be praying and fasting before you go to that person and see if that helps. And we also encourage everyone to develop a media plan too. Because this isn't going to work if you're just if your mind is not being renewed during there, right? So I encourage you to do a couple things. One, I encourage you just to cut back on the amount if you're consuming a lot. Because one of the things that will often happen to me is I'll get home and I'll just be exhausted and I want to decompress and so I'll turn on the TV for an hour or so. And then I won't have time, right? I won't have time to pray or to, to read scripture. What if during Lent 
we took that time that we had been investing in other ways, and we invested in this way, reading these things and, and, and praying. So I encourage you to do that. And also the other things we encourage you to do when it comes to media, if you're consuming stuff right now that really others other people, if your news source paints other people as easy targets, if you're reading comments you know, on, on media or social media that are just inflammatory, get away from that for a while. Take Lent to just detox from just being filled constantly with people who are othering other people. And instead, try to fill it with things that are God-honoring. So here's the closing question in, in light of all these things we've said. When Easter arrives, can you imagine what it would be like to get to Easter and feel like you're prayed up and better prepared for these conversations? That's what this is about. This is about future you on the other side of Easter thanking now you because you did the hard work for these 40 days of saying, I'm going to be better prepared. You're not going to be an expert, but do you think you got a better chance at having a positive conversation if you spent these 40 days preparing for it and praying that God is going to go before you? This could be a game-changing, game-changing spring. Well, at this time, I want to invite the worship band to come forward and close us with a song. And as they do, I want to share a connection that I, I never made before with these words. One of my go-to Bible verses as a former coach and runner comes out of First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer who's punching the air. No, I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. Here's what I didn't know. What I didn't know is in Corinth, where this was written to, they had games that were second only to the Olympics. I believe Olympia was also on that peninsula where they were. They had games that were so big, they were second only to the Olympics. So when Paul was writing this to the Corinthians, this is like writing to Minnesotans about snow. They got this, right? They understood this. And so one of the commentators, as they were mentioning all this, they were talking about like the boxers beating the air. You know, and I've always pictured professional boxers doing shadow boxing. They said, look at this differently. Because again, these people knew the games and they knew when someone was just like flailing, right? In a fight, the arms are just flailing all over. They said, think about celebrity boxing. You know? People who had had their moment now becoming a spectacle, a mockery. And they're just, they're throwing all these punches and people are getting hurt and people are just watching something ridiculous. And I was thinking, that sure sounds a lot like the church. There's a whole lot of people that look at the church and they're going, the church had their moment and look at them, they're just hanging on and they're just flailing. Look at how they turn on each other. Look how they turn on everybody. What if we went into training? Because we should be really good at reconciliation. What if we committed to that? Let me pray. Father, we pray that we, as much as it depends on us, as individuals, as a church, that we would paint a very different picture for the world. A picture of broken people, humble people,
who don't claim to have all the answers, but people who are seeking the power and presence of Christ in our lives so that we can follow in his footsteps. And through his guidance and his strength, we could not be like people who are just flailing all over, but we're people who are getting really good at reconciling. Lead us that direction in Jesus' name, step by step, amen.